Welcome back to another Untitled Movie Review. I am one of your hosts, Matt Rohrbeck, alongside my, oh my, not my BFCA button. He's allergic to tomatoes, but he's tomato meter approved. My, my, <laughs> my BFCA B- button? Benjamin <laughs> I I got button? Benjamin, yeah, I think I are got Benjamin Are we talking about David Fincher on today's episode? Yeah, that's Eric Marchin. Today we are talking uh, about David. Excuse me, it's pronounced Merkin. Yeah, Eric Merkin. Uh, We are reviewing David Fincher's Mank today, uh, being released on Netflix on November the 13th. No, wait, sorry. Released in some cinemas November the 13th, 2020. Being released on Netflix on Friday, December 4th, 2020. Probably by the time you're listening to this, it'll be up there for you. Uh, Starring Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, uh, a bunch of other people. a special cameo by Bill Nye that Eric pointed out to me that oh, I yeah. didn't even clue into. Um, Eric, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, you know, it's we're we're in December now, Matt, and uh, things are 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 looking up because it's the end of 2020, the year that was a literal dumpster fire. Yeah, really, really was. Um, but will next year be any better? Who the hell knows? Well, after Warner Brothers' big announcement, it seems like they're preparing for the worst. Yeah, so. we are just to be completely transparent. We are recording this the same day Warner Brothers announced that their entire 2021 theatrical slate is going to be going straight to HBO Max as well as cinemas. But we'll see how. Uh, you know, that holds up whether they'll be open or whether places like AMC and will actually even want to play them because of that. Um, but maybe Fincher's ahead of the game, man. Eh, I got yeah, another yeah, one I got in it. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven. Because <laughs> uh, he's uh, partnered up with Netflix for this. And it, he, I mean, he's obviously he did Manhunter for them um, and and House of Cards and ha- has had a good relationship with them. But um, he recently even came out Mind and Hunters. talked about, you know, you, you said the, Manhunter. To, That's the Michael Mann. To, movie. Yes. Fuck. I'm all over the place today. Um, today's been a wild day, everybody. Yes. Uh, Mindhunter. Um, and now I lost my train of thought, but anyways, partnered with Netflix now talked shit about kind of, you know, the state of the movie industry right now and that he's happy with Netflix kind of giving some, you know, uh, filmmakers the freedom to make the movie that they want. Uh, and he even signed, I think, you know, an exclusive deal with them for the next four years. So, uh, Mank being the first feature film he is, uh, directed for them. Um, Eric, you want to just kick it off? What the hell is Mank? Yeah, and and we should also mention um, at the end of the show or at the end of this episode, we'll also be ranking David Fincher's oh sure uh, we can do that, uh, eleven yeah. films, and that this is uh, Fincher's first movie in six years since Gone Girl. I can't believe Gone Girl was made was that long six ago. years ago. Matt, I just started dating Nevis. I just got my job at Show Me. Remember that after the yep. screening of Gone Girl. Oh um, yeah, right it. after the press screening you were having this conversation like we were walking down uh Bay and uh, Bloor, Bloor Street. Yeah, yeah, and you were having that conversation and little did you know that Show Me would be a, you know, a long-lasting streaming service. <laughs> and Eric, I will show something to the camera right now. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I didn't even purposely grab this mug. I'm drinking tea out of a Show Me um uh mug and I didn't even plan that. But yeah, when Gone Girl came out, I got a phone call right after offering me the job or an interview. I forget which one it was, but um, for my job at show me, which kickstarted my social media marketing career, um, my, you know, my side gig to the film criticism, but anyways, we're getting off topic. Uh, yes. Well, let's rank some Fincher after we talk about Mank. Uh, but Eric, let's get into it. Did Mank. it, did Mank stank or is it dank? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. I don't know. Um, yeah, so Mank is a fairly easy movie to kind of synopsize. It's basically the story of the making of Citizen Kane, but from the point of view, or at least the perspective of Herman J. Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, who at the time in 1940, as he was writing the script, was kind of locked away at the North Verde Ranch um, and sort of trying to get a script drafted or a first draft written up in 90 days. And the societal pressures and distractions that would normally sort of, you know, keep him preoccupied with, you know, booze, gambling, and women are all removed as he's kind of basically focused to write this script. And essentially the narrative 
is a series of flashbacks to him working at MGM in the 1930s uh, under Louis B. Mayer, who is this autocratic kind of figure, basically, you know, telling uh, the people that work there during a time of you know, the, the great depression and, and sort of cutbacks that everybody should be, you know, contributing back to the studio. And so Mank himself feels that like, you know, what Louis B. Mayer is doing is, is wrong. And then on top of that, you have, um, you know, a political challenge, uh, an election with the governor, the incumbent governor, Frank Miriam, and uh, the challenger, uh, Upton Sinclair, who's played by uh, Bill Nye in a small cameo. And when I heard his voice, I was like, no, that's not Bill Nye. And then I saw, saw the back of his head and I'm like, holy shit, that is Bill Nye. So you only see him from a little bit of a, a ways away. But going back- and I didn't to- catch that. I just- totally missed it <laughs> yeah going back into the story you know it's it's about mankowitz's relationship with william randolph hearst who was a media and newspaper mogul and his mistress marion davies who's played by amanda seyfried uh and i think a really strong and dignified role because marion davies in in other TV and literature has kind of been portrayed as very uh, shrewd and um, obnoxious where this, I kind of felt like uh, Seyfried and, and the script and the writing actually gave her more of an interior life. The script itself is written by uh, David Fincher's late father, Jack Fincher, who also was um, the uh, managing editor at life magazine um, at the San Francisco department for for a period. So it, you kind of get the sense that like Fincher kept this going because he wanted to make this back in in the 90s after the game. And you get the sense that, you know, he's kind of wanted to make this movie for a better part of 30 years now. Um, but he just couldn't get the financing for it. it. It's shot in black and white. It's made to look and feel like a film that was made in the thirties or forties yeah. with, you know, mono sound um, with a score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that uses big band and jazz instead of synth. Um, but the biggest problem I think with this movie and, and, and for me personally, when it comes to criticizing it is that it shot uh digitally and even though yeah. you know he tries it's to make made it to look like it's, it's faux film, film in yeah. the sense that you know he's he's trying to make it grainier he has the cigarette burns that pop up every time and every I time a cigarette that, burn pops me. up i just think of fight club right with the scene where tyler durden sort of points that out while he's making uh, yeah. uh the movie and as matt takes a a, a message on his no phone. sorry it's okay uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you. It did make me think of Fight Club. It also, um, I thought was used more interestingly in Fight Club. But um, yeah, I think just to get right into it too, um, this did nothing for me. I and and to preface it, I love David Fincher. Like Gone Girl was my favorite movie of that year. Um, I love uh, Seven. I love Social Network. Was if you listen to our best movies of the last decade, was my number one film of the decade. So like, I'm a huge Fincher fan, and there's only like a few movies here and there that I kind of, you know, don't care for or kind of lower on my list, but I still think are incredibly watchable. Um, Mank, you know, just not really my cup of tea, Eric. Um, As we're having just, tea. <laughs> yeah, I just like. You know me with like, and this sounds, and people will give me shit for this all the time, but like, I don't care for Citizen Kane and just, I have such a hard time getting into just old movies in general, like real, like pre seventies, sixties and earlier. I just like, I don't know what it is in my brain, but I just zone out and I just cannot get into it for the life of me. So I was excited for a new Fincher movie. It's been a long ass time since gone girl. Um, I wasn't super excited for the subject matter. Don't care about Herman Mankiewicz. Don't really care about citizen Kane, Gary Oldman lately. I miss like wild chameleon, Gary Oldman of the nineties and, and, and two thousands. Yeah. Um, and, and earlier, and I just like, 
sitting and watching this movie, I'm like, okay, it's technically sound and technically interesting of, you know, this thing of I'm going to shoot this and make it look like it was, or at least attempt to look like it was, you know, a movie straight, like a lost movie from that era. And I think he mostly accomplishes that um, with the sound. Like I like Reznor and Ross's kind of score. They definitely it's something completely different for them. Um, I mean, we just watched soul the other night. We did a back to back kind of with, uh, well I did with Mank and soul. And it's so interesting how different those scores are from one another where soul is different for them because it does play with the synthy stuff, but then does go into some jazzy kind of music. And then here in Mank, it's just purely like era specific. Like we're only using instruments and sounds that we would, that they would have used in that era for movies back then. And all the stylistic choices, the, the cigarette kind of changing of the reels kind of thing. I just started to roll my eyes at, cause I'm like, all right, dude, fucking shoot it on film. Then if you're going to do that, like, um, that kind of stuff. And then the movie looks really nice, but it doesn't necessarily look exactly like it was shot, you know, with cameras from back then and things like that. It's also, it's, it's in HDR. I watched it in Dolby vision and like, it looks great, but like it doesn't necessarily. So I feel like that clash of making it look authentic to the period, but then also making it very, you know, 2020 crisp, uh, like, I don't know, stylish and, and I don't know I, the text, uh, the typing text for the interiors and the flashbacks. I just kind of got sick of after a while. And then I just couldn't get into any of it. I was like, why do I care about this guy? I'm like, I don't fucking care about him. He's kind of a prick. Um, he's just an alcoholic asshole. And like, I just, I, I'm like, I don't care about this movie. I don't care about anything that's happening. And I, I t- sort of just zoned out for the entire thing where I like, listened and watched but i didn't really retain much of anything at all and um i just find like i don't know if it's fincher's worst movie but to me it is his least interesting because i just could not care about anything that was happening where i'm like okay technically he's obviously a master he obviously is a perfectionist from the lighting like i liked a lot of the the black and white cinematography even though maybe it wasn't period authentic i did like you know you can tell he blocks everything meticulously and every little piece on screen is you know he made sure that was perfect to him at least um so i can appreciate that um but when it comes to story and performances like yeah old men is gary Oldman. he's a great actor but i'm just like i don't fucking care about anything he's doing amanda seyfried lover and i thought she did pretty well as marion but like i just I don't know. I just was like, I don't fucking care about any of this. And I just couldn't, couldn't get into it for the life of me, which made me just kind of sit there stone face and, um, zone out and then go, fuck what was happening. And then like get back into the movie and then just keep getting lost in my own head. Cause I just didn't care what was happening. So anyways, uh, super disappointing for me. I don't know. Had you seen citizen Kane, uh, before, before not me? recently, but I have seen it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's been, since college so it's got to been you know be thir- 10, 10 years how old am i i'm 31 right am i 31 you're 31 yeah. turning 32 in um, february yeah and uh this year feels like 80 years so um yeah i i i've seen citizen kane once in college did not care for it then uh, i've had no desire to watch it since um and i was gonna rewatch it before this but then i'm like i also just don't want to do that <laughs> so i just watched this interesting interesting i i i don't disagree or with your criticisms of the film because i feel that this is a movie that you know lends itself to being judged and there are things about this film where like i uh, watching the movie and sort of reading you know fincher you know talk about the film i think is is interesting in a meta kind of way and i'll, and I'll get into this in a second but i really do love Citizen Kane and the making of this movie and all the behind the scenes stuff. And, and I think that the film, the TV movie that you would really, really like is the HBO film RKO 281 with Liev Schreiber uh, as Orson Welles and uh, John Malkovich as Herman uh, Mankiewicz. And there, the movie is more 
comedic and tongue-in-cheek and a lot of the the film has a lighter tone and it's kind of humorous and playful and a little bit kind of like cd still and sort of showing you like you know the the studio system is is very much run by men like a big kind of like plot point in yeah. that version is rosebud the sled spoiler alert uh is named after the genitals of Marion Davies and that's which kind of they like, reference in this movie but yeah, only just very but in, briefly. in the HBO film it's like one of the main plot points to why William Randolph Hearst who's played by James Cromwell in that film um, wants to shut down the production and so it's kind of almost like some of it covers the, a lot of the, the 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 similar terrain but then it also kind of feels like that movie could be like a sequel as well because it's also like the post-production of citizen kane and it sort of focuses on like rko struggling to get it out because um uh, william randolph hearst is basically trying to uh railroad the film um but going back to to Mank, Eric, I- may, may i cut you off for a second do you yeah. think randy orton named his finishing maneuver the rko after the film studio or do you think it was because it stood for randy knockout <laughs> I would like to think that he is a fan of RKO and or maybe, you know, the references to RKO in the movie The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Or maybe he's a fan of the original King Kong, which was one of RKO's biggest pictures at the time. I have a feeling it just stands for Randy Knockout. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's a question you could ask him one day if you get a chance to interview him. Should Um, ask Dave Bautista when we interviewed him. Yeah, but going back to the movie, Sorry, there ahead. are things that was that a dumb I, joke. No, no, no it's, it's okay. It's fine. I I get it. I get it. I you know, Eric Merkin here. So, um but yeah, going back to the film, I think what fascinated me the most about the movie is what it's trying to say about not just Hollywood, but the creative process, the the, the yeah. one person or people that are usually kind of overlooked when it comes to credit and and sort of being uh praised for the work when it comes to filmmaking are the writers and you look at david fincher david fincher has never written any of his films so he is a i mean he's not a director for hire per se with the exception of of alien 3 but he's a director that's never written his own work or at least hasn't been credited for writing anything so I find that that's fascinating because every time when a David Fincher movie comes out, you don't talk about, you know, Andrew Kevin it. Walker for, for seven or, you know, doing the rewrites on uh, Fight Club or Eric Roth for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button or, you know, Gillian. I mean, Gillian Flynn's probably maybe the closest yeah. with Bond Girl because it, she was the author as well. But for the and most Sorkin part. Sorkin to an extent, too. Yeah, Sorkin talk. as well. So those are the two. But usually when you talk about David Fincher movies, you talk, Vanderbilt. About him or, you talk about him first and foremost, right? As, as yes, sort of I, the I know. Yes. The director is the auteur. Yeah. And he's kind of, I guess, you know, in this movie would kind of be like the Orson Welles of, of the film. Um, but it is also fascinating because he was talking about, um, in interviews, Fincher was talking about how his father's script was originally a movie that kind of came off as like sour grapes towards, uh, Orson Welles and the industry as a whole. And I still think it weirdly does at the end, especially with Tom Burke, who, um, recently was in the souvenir Joanna Hogg's movie playing Orson Welles in a couple of the latter scenes and sort of basically saying like you know wells was this big baby because he didn't want to share writing credit with you know herman mankowitz and it's also funny because it does you know lean on mankowitz's side and say like okay well mankowitz was the real kind of writer behind this thing but the arbitration of the script through the wga proves that wells wrote as much and contributed as much to the final draft as Mankiewicz. So it's, it's, it's a weird kind of like sort of pitting these two people against each other in, in an odd way in this, in this movie. And then again, you also have, you know, the beginning of the WGA um, and the writers guild in the 1930s and, yeah. and unions kind of being a prominent force. And then also, you know, things being very prescient where, you know, the politics and sort of uh, propaganda that are being sort of spooned out in California are, aren't that, you know, dissimilar to what, you know, the last four years have been like. And stylistically, there's one sequence that is very much kind of like David Fincher going over the top and kind of him adding his, 
you know, kind of brand of, of style into the movie, which is an election night scene. Um, it's the one thing that I, the one scene that made me perk up a little bit where I'm like, Oh yeah. Cause it's, it's, like, it's a night of, 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 yeah. of basically him realizing that, you know, the studio system at the time is still very much a Republican driven um, party. You know, there are, the, the studio system is a part of the Republican Party instead of being socialist or liberal, where nowadays you think of Hollywood, you think of California, you think of, you know, a, a liberal kind of uh, mindset and, and you know, political ideology. Um, then it was very much Republican. And, you know, like you see that in sort of how, you know, the dealings go on. And I think that that's kind of interesting with the jaded quality of sort of Mank looking at the world that he's a part of and that, you know, they're making movies that are about the human experience or films to kind of celebrate escapism in the time of the depression. But ultimately what it comes down to is the studio is just wanting the bottom dollar. And right, I think to that's, make money. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's kind of fascinating to watch. There's also some weird parallels with the casting of Gary Oldman as Mank, which also kind of weirdly kind of, compare to his Oscar winning role as uh as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hours. That's so, a movie I also didn't like. <laughs> right, right, right. But I think it is interesting to note that so he's playing Mank in this and Mank is basically, you know, bedridden because he just got out of a car accident um and is writing this script and uh Lily Collins's uh Rita Alexander is there to sort of um help with the writing and dictation and things like that, which is almost the exact same sort of relationship, working relationship he has as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour with Lily James as his secretary. And both of the women who are helping him write this script or write his speeches have somebody that is fighting overseas, which I think is kind of interesting as well. So moving um, forward, Gary Oldman is only going to play characters with a actress named Lily as his not assistant, but you know, a writer. And okay, I get yeah, I, right. I, that's a random connection, Eric, but I love it. Yeah, and then I mean the other thing I really liked, and I think the casting is all good. Like I think everybody in this movie yeah. does uh, really solid work. I don't think really anybody stands out with the exception of like how the Bill roles Nye. are written. Uh, like I think Seyfried and and Gary Oldman are kind of like the two standouts, but I think everybody is well cast. And like it is interesting to see you know Charles Dance reunite with David Fincher because Charles Dance was in Alien Three, which was Fincher's first movie and he considers that his worst film and then also on top of that you have you know people like tom uh pelfrey who's playing uh joseph mankowitz who is was a great filmmaker who wrote and directed movies like all about eve and sleuth and kind of kept going after herman mankowitz passed away so i think there is the most kind of emotional element of the film and i was a little bit worried about that because the one movie in fincher's career that i really don't like is um curious case of benjamin button because i feel that fincher the one thing he's not good at is sentiment mentality and nostalgia and when watching the scene between the two manks and sort of after you know um joe has read the script i felt that that was kind of an interesting weird i, I felt that that sort of moment almost was maybe jack fincher and david having a conversation in a weird way and and not necessarily talking about like a script or something but just having a conversation about their lives and careers that kind of reflect a similar trajectory in the movie with these characters so there's a lot of it's sort of a lot of interesting stuff to extrapolate that's not necessarily in the movie but i think the movie as a whole is a behind the scenes kind of film about the industry and at that yeah. time is still interesting and i think from the point of view of David Fincher, the cold and clinical approach works here because it's showing you a side of Hollywood that isn't rose tinted, or as I said in my review, rose butted. You know, like God damn it, Eric. <laughs> it's it's very much a cynical sort of takedown of what Hollywood was. Because when we think about Hollywood in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we think of a different time that was more clean cut. Everything yeah. was kind of polished and nice and classy. classy. But it wasn't. I mean, it was just no. as bad then or maybe even worse than it is now. And even the stuff, you know, sort of um, with – 
conversations about Hitler being very similar to what Trump is right, um, yeah. as a politician, I think are also fascinating. And I like that um, Mank kind of holds court as as kind of the 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 fool, but sometimes the fool is the smartest person in the you know, room in the yeah. room and yeah. sort of playing the situation. But I also <laughs> understand your criticisms because they're there. And I and I don't think it's Fincher's best movie, but there are things about the film that I found absolutely fascinating to sort of have this conversation with you now and also no, just think your perspective. It. Yeah. Like I, I, I just, it didn't click with me and I don't know whether it's the subject matter or the time period. Uh, like again, uh, from a technical standpoint, everything from these like gorgeous sets that they created and like on the different studio lots and like it's, it's immaculately put together, I think, which is just what Fincher's fantastic at. He's just so he's obsessive and he's a perfectionist and, um, you know, there's all those stories about him doing 50 takes of certain scenes and different things like that to get either the best performances or to make sure that he gets it exactly how he wants. And I think that comes across here in, in things, like I said, like the lighting, the sound, like I love the mono soundtrack. I think it is a cool, um, you know, stylistic choice. And I like the score and, and I just found the subject matter to kind of be, um, just, not up my alley and and that's just a personal thing maybe and and um it's just my style of reviewing movies because like i don't necessarily that think that this is a bad movie but it is a bad movie for me and if you vibe with you know my opinions on things you might uh feel the same and um but i do there are some interesting things there like i do always find the studio system in that time period to be kind of interesting where people were more employees than like contractors where you kind of like worked for a studio and you like pumped out like a bunch of di- like you had a x movie contract with a studio and you know people are doing those things now where you like fincher just signed four years with netflix or whatever and and things like that but usually it's like a first look deal or it's like yeah you'll you'll make some things for them but here it was like no you're like a employee of them and you go through and you pump out this content for well, this, like the writer's um, room is a th- think yeah. tank basically and yeah. nobody really is considering like you know this is high art or something the way that i think film is usually kind of talked about now right like i mean there's still the low and high sort of uh values and deco- sort of economy of it all but nowadays well, like even the pitch meeting was interesting in the movie right where yeah. they go in and kind of like pitch to them and i just found that kind of interesting of yeah, like, joseph von stonberg character yeah. when they're talking about like making the frankenstein movie but making it different from what universal was doing at the was time doing, which i think like was cheap monster really fascinating thing. because they yeah. were making basically the B movie ripoff version of that, which a lot of yeah. studios did in, you know, the seventies and eighties, especially, you know, a studio like Roger Corman, but you look at the think tank and like everybody's pitching ideas and writing stuff and, and doing rewrites. And, and you and- worked for a studio and there was a group of writers that yeah. worked for a studio. It's not like, now where you would just take a meeting and you could go pitch your story to anyone and you don't necessarily have people on, you know, but the uh, name payroll. is more of a brand than the studio even like, yes, there are some studios that are a brand onto themselves like a 24 and things like that. But back then the studio truly was the brand. I mean, they, you know, uh, Arliss Howard as Louis B. Mayer mentions like the biggest star that they have on the lot is the lion. It's not yeah. any one actor for MGM. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I'm just kind of torn a little bit. Like, I don't think it's a horrible movie. It's just, um, it's, it just didn't get its hooks in me. And I just completely kind of tuned it out and, um, and noticed some technical stuff, but from a storytelling standpoint, perked up during that election night scene. Cause it's probably the most stylistic, uh, part of the movie. But, um, I don't know. It doesn't do much for me. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah, please. So, okay. We both really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. We were both kind of mixed on the artist. Think it's fine. Didn't deserve right. uh, you know, a Best Picture nominee uh, win, that kind of thing. Um, but we're seeing... Uh, you know, a, a recent trend or a comeback of the behind the scenes studio movies. Ben Affleck's going to be doing one apparently on Chinatown. Um, there's a Godfather one. God, there's out. two there's Godfather Oscar, ones. Oscar there's Isaac, one with Army right? Hammer as a TV series, yeah. and then Oscar Isaac and Jake Gyllenhaal. And then you also have Damien Chazelle doing Babylon, which almost basically seems 
you know, in the similar territory of um, the artist. And then even. Um, and see, uh, I love the artist. Or, no, not the artist. Sorry, I'm thinking of uh, the. Oh my God, never mind. Keep going. And then you also even have Todd Haynes's Wonderstruck, which kind of dealt with, you know, silent films transitioning into talkies. The player so, is what I'm thinking of. Sorry. Right. Which, again, another great kind of, but that's yeah. that's more, that's not specifically about like one event one or movie, one, just, one but movie. It's about the industry. Industry. In, in, yeah. Yeah. Um, so sorry, was there a question? Well, yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah. I was just going to ask, do you think that this is going to be a trend that is popular throughout the next 10 years or is this something that's going to be i think so as we're getting to that like a hundred year kind of anniversary of uh, i mean of the golden age of hollywood and stuff like that like i think like obviously these studios have been around longer than a hundred years in some cases but like i feel like some of those big prominent movies as we start to get even into you know in the mid you know these these movies are now 80 to 100 years old some you know, between 40 and 60 years. But like, I, I don't know. I think we're at that perfect time where you can kind of, these are very famous productions and that like you can go back and, um, and revisit them from, uh, an interesting perspective. And, um, I don't know, like they, I, I vibe with them mostly. Like I love behind the scenes, Hollywood movies. I obviously both of us, I think are, are fascinated with the industry and, um, and I, I mostly vibe with them. I just feel like, uh, it really just depends on what movie they're featuring and who's involved and uh, and things like that. So um, in this case, it didn't. Like you said, the artist I, I I thought was charming at the time, but that goes even further than this movie does of really trying to kind of like capture what a you know a movie from that time period was, where it's I think a little bit more gimmicky. Where I think this has the right amount of gimmick in it, even though maybe the cinematography doesn't completely work and things like that. But, um, yeah, I, I do think that we'll see more and more of these, especially if they're successful and people like them. And it seems like Mank, you know, people are, I think it's most people are digging, but we'll see what a, you know, a, a, a normal audience thinks of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about them. Like I, I want to watch all of these movies. I'll always give them a shot, but, um, it's just citizen Kane was never really like never understood why people really loved it. And, uh, and why more was of a Casablanca guy. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, again, all of the, like, again, I, I make fun of me if you want, but like, I just struggle so hard to get into, you know, uh, older, older movies and like but you've I talked want, about liking film noir before like the maltese have, falcon yeah. things like yes that. i do like maltese falcon a lot so maybe it's just specific genres and um i i don't know i can't really explain it but i just don't care about citizen kane and i i don't really uh uh care about this movie so um but yeah i do think it'll be a trend eric i i think you know, historical Hollywood loves Hollywood. Remember that. So yeah. that's how I'll end. And, it. and it's not like it, you know, the genre or subgenre disappeared, but it feels like almost between this and once upon a time in Hollywood. And with a lot of the, those announcements that we mentioned that are coming up it almost feels like we're going to be getting a lot of those in the next couple of years. And I wonder if that will be something that will continue to get throughout the, you know, the next 10 years or so where like, you know, a famous movie has an anniversary and like, you know, a behind the scenes making of apocalypse now, because, you know, the documentary heart of darkness has so much there to kind of, right. you, you could know, turn that with. into a narrative. Right. Yeah. But then again, I rather just see a documentary of it. Cause I think that would be so much more interesting, whether it be her burden of dreams about Fitz Corraldo, the Werner Herzog movie. So I, I think it, it just depends on the, the movie or the story, right? Because right. like we, we reviewed console wars, obviously very different than, you know, what we're talking about, but that's a movie where we watched the documentary and I was like, I almost would have like, liked a stylized, you know, heightened, you know, TV series on this or something like that, or a movie rather than watching this very by the book documentary. So like, I really, I, I agree with you that. Yeah. In most cases you can probably watch a good behind the scenes doc on these things, but there is some fun seeing, you know, well-known big stars play other big stars from the past uh, focusing on a big production of a movie you really love or something like that. So like, I think there is some appeal there and I understand why, you know, more and more movies like this are getting made, but um, yeah, I think it just really depends to me. This is, this is like David Fincher doing almost like a, a Spielberg or pulling a Spielberg now, like in the same way that like you look at Spielberg's career in the last 
10, 15 years, like everything he's made for the most part are historical biopics or <laughs> guess what with... I haven't really enjoyed. Right. <laughs> but that's kind of what I felt that this was in a weird way that this was like Fincher doing, you know, something that wasn't expected of him because I mean, he even made the joke when he won the golden globe for director that everybody, you know, always expects him to make movies about serial killers or misanthropes. And this I guess kind of falls in the more misanthrope category, but I mean, Mank, as you can see, is kind of the life of the party at times. And like, it feels like it's something like I want, he wanted to challenge himself to do something that wasn't kind of, you know, typical in his playbook. And it almost does feel like it's him doing like what Spielberg did with, you know, movies like Lincoln or Bridge of Spies where he's earned it. He's definitely earned the right. I'm not saying like he shouldn't have made this movie or, you know, like, I I wish he made something else. Like, yeah, I'm I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are disappointed, especially after you know the kind of pulpy nature of Gone Girl being this fun. That's, what, that's how I want my Fincher satirical <laughs> so, movie, right? Yeah. Where where this is a little bit more. It's it's dry. It's flat. It's very much kind of removing the the varnish, the shine of what Hollywood is, but it does it in a very kind of. Um, doldrum kind of manner and and i don't mind that but i think a lot of people will be disappointed with it especially if they want you know like something to follow up uh gone girl in the same kind of manner you know something with a lot of energy yeah yeah i think that's exactly how you're you're describing exactly how i feel so uh ultimately i'm gonna give the movie a two and a half uh out of five i'm gonna give it a four cool and then we should also we should also rank uh, yeah we can make Fincher. I so to preface this, um, excuse me, my tea. Um, I haven't watched some of these recently, so like if we're going through, I'm not going to rank them quite yet. But to preface it, we watched Alien Three pretty recently because we went through the Alien movies. Remember? Yeah. Um, Seven. I watch every you know every once in a while. It's it's been a little bit. A while it's been a while, but I know I love seven. The game, it's been probably 10 years since I've seen the game. Probably uh, Fight Club's one of those movies that I haven't seen in a while. Panic Room, I watched recently. Zodiac, I haven't seen in a while. Benjamin Button, I haven't seen in a while. Social Network, I watch all the time. Dragon Tattoo, I haven't seen since it was in theaters. And Gone Girl, I've seen, I love, but I've Gone Girl is one of those movies. Fincher movies in general, I find, aren't like super rewatchable. Like I love most of them, but like I need to be in a very specific mood to watch a Fincher movie. And I feel right. like I haven't I haven't gone back and watched a lot of his stuff, even though I I, I love a lot of it. Zodiac's been in my queue for a really long time. I've wanted to revisit Benjamin Button because I remember really enjoying it. But then, you know, the discourse on Benjamin Button since has is kind of turned on it. And I'm like, mm, maybe I should give it another shot, you know, 12 years later now when I'm a bit older. Um, so anyways, I'm just prefacing that I haven't, these are off memory for me. And I don't know how recently you watched all of them. Yeah, no, I, I want to also say, though, that I, I do mostly agree with what you're saying, where like a lot of Fincher's movies, they're, I think they're well made, they're they're artistically driven, there's a voice there, but there is something about them that is hard to kind of, you know, watch more than once. And I know that's why he made like Panic Room specifically, because he wanted to make a movie that was kind of an Just easy, fun, fun movie. The one film in his filmography that i can watch over and over again is the movie that i think like you know on if it were any other filmmaker it would be almost impossible which is seven because seven to me is it should be a you know like i look at darren aronofsky's requiem for a dream i've seen that movie once and i don't ever really want to return to it again even though i think it's a good film Seven should be that kind of movie, but there's something commercial enough about it with the procedural aspects, but also the style that like even talking about seven now, like I like after doing this, I want to I want to watch, watch seven. seven. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm with you with seven. Like it is a it's a dark movie, but like I, I could put seven on at any time. Uh, I think seven would go with social network. I could put on any time too. There's just a pacing to that movie that is just kinetic and, and excellent. And, 
and Gone and Girl. I think still shot on film. Yeah, and and like you said, Gone Girl is a pulpy kind of fun movie, and I've been wanting to rewatch. I think the length on Gone Girl is one reason why I haven't like sat down and just. I've I fucking love Gone Girl, but I I just I'm like. I'm like, I need to be in a mood for Gone Girl. And I always, it's in 4K on, on digital and I've been wanting to rewatch it. I just haven't been uh, uh, in that mindset. Uh, so let's go through it. Um, yeah. I got a, I haven't put mine together, but if I was going, do you want to go? Cause you have your letterbox list. I do. Yes. Do you just want to run through it or do you want yeah, so to go? Did you want one? me to go through one to 11 or 11 to no, one? Go 11 to one. Okay, so number 11 is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Fair, fair. Number 10 is Fight Club. Uh, number 9 is Alien 3. Uh, number 8 is The Game. Number 7 is Panic Room. Number 6 is Mank. Number 5 is Gone Girl. Number 4 is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number 3 is The Social Network. Number 2 is Zodi- Zodiac. And number 1 is Seven. I like it. I like it. Um, but two and three are interchangeable depending on the day. Like Zodiac and Social Network could easily switch depending on like how I feel. So I got to go 11 to one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would go 11 Mank. Um, I would go 10. I would go do, 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 do. 10. I would go. I would go the game 10. Uh, at number nine, I would go Alien 3. At number eight, I would go Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number seven, I would go probably Panic Room. Uh, number six... I would go Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Number five, I would go... Did I do Panic Room yet? Yeah, Yeah, you did. did, Number seven. Number five, I would do Fight Club. Number four, I would do Zodiac. Number three, I would do seven number two i would do gone girl and number one i would do social network nice that's just off the top of my head off of memory from what i remember my visceral kind of reaction to each fincher movie i think that's how i would go and my reasoning there just like mank again i think is probably a better movie than some of the ones that i have ranked above it but this is my personal ranking Um, and even how I review is still very, you know, personal. I just go from movies are subjective. So my opinion is different than yours. I'm going to review it from my opinion. <laughs> I'm not the technically sound, uh, you know, film critic. Um, yeah, I just Mank doesn't do much for me. Um, I think uh, Dragon Tattoo, The Game, Alien 3, those are the ones that I, 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 I just feel like are kind of near the bottom dragon tattoo. And I was talking about this with you earlier, dragon tattoo, Benjamin button, and even Zodiac are three that I really do want to rewatch. Cause I feel like they could drastically change where they are in my rankings. Cause like, um, dragon tattoo. I just remember only seeing that one time and being very frustrated with its length and its multiple endings. And that whole kind of epilogue at the very end of the movie. Um, I really did not like it. Uh, and I felt like it left a sour taste in my mouth and I haven't really watched it since. So I feel maybe with like a clear mind going in with an open mind, uh, like Sir might, strumming. Yeah. I might like it a bit more. Um, and then, uh, Zodiac, um, I know everyone really, really fucking loves. I just don't, I, I remember really enjoying it, but I haven't watched it since 2007 probably. So, um, I feel like that could change. And then uh, what was the other one I mentioned? Um, Oh, Benjamin Button. Um, For many of the reasons you brought up and why it's so low on your list. And I mean, I trust you. We mostly agree on things. Obviously, we don't agree on Mank and a few other things. Usually black and white Netflix movies. We don't really agree. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Although I don't like I will say this, like in terms of black and white, not Netflix specifically, but like 
the one like one movie I didn't like that was that I was nervous that this movie that Mank would be like, and it is a little bit like it, but I think it's it's a better film. Is Steven Soderbergh's The Good German with George yeah. Clooney and Kate uh, Blanchett, which was Soderbergh doing kind of a similar thing and trying to almost remake Casablanca. But I felt that that movie was such an experiment that it just kind of failed completely, and everything about that movie felt, you know, down to the cinematography, but not just it. Faux, like it just kind of felt like this fake version of a movie that they were trying to recreate from the 1940s well, I think instead this of does actually a better job. committing yeah. to that. Yeah, like I think Fincher should have committed to shooting this on film and he could have. Like that's the thing that drives me nuts. Like I know he's talked about having problems getting projects off the ground for the last six years. And, you know, we, we've talked about it on the regular show where, you know, he was at one point going to do, you know, World War Z2 and, and we were kind of thinking like, what's that going to look like? But he's David Fincher and, you know, like Netflix would have, you know, given him the money to shoot on film. I mean, if the devil all the time can yeah. shoot on film, then Mank could have as well. Did we confirm I, just that? I know we looked it that. up and I did confirm that it shot on film. I right? think did it you, is. You were worried that it was doing the same thing, that it was digital, right? And then. Yeah. Yeah. And but I, I mean, think he told me afterwards that Romo, uh, Lau Crowley's. Romo was shot on film, right? Yeah. Or no. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like they would, like you said, if he, if he wanted it, they would have let him do it. Yeah. I and hope they, they let for it. David Lynch do it because remember Showtime wouldn't. So I'm hoping with whatever this new David Lynch show is too, that they let him shoot it on film. Like he wanted to do with twin peaks, the return, but those motherfuckers wouldn't let him. And then it looked like shit at times, <laughs> but then added to the weirdness. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, crazy day that we're about to go talk about in the um 79th draft of the untitled movie podcast please go check it out it's going to be an awesome episode eric and i probably the whole episode are just going to talk about you know the state of the industry um and netflix has uh led the charge there of uh, i feel like netflix is that you know that first domino of what has changed this industry. And you can see with what they're doing with these O2 or filmmakers and kind of giving them free reign on things. And, and like, it is that old, like, I mean, there's the, the line in the movie where Orson Welles goes like, I, I can do whatever I want. We have final cut. Like there's going to be no studio notes. There's like, it, it's me. And I feel like a lot of the times on this for better or for worse on a lot of these Netflix movies, I feel like, they're like, you know what? We put out so much shit, not just shit as in bad. I mean, just stuff. We put out so much stuff that we'll just let you do whatever the fuck you want. Because like, you know what? We'll have a new thing. We next need week. it. You know, we're, we're looking to hit all these niche markets and these niche communities and things like that. So we know cinephiles and Fincher fans like they want a pure Fincher movie or they want a pure, you know, X, Y, Z. So like, we'll just let you do whatever you want. And um, for better, for worse. But like, I think that's why you're seeing a lot of filmmakers, you know, are open to working with Netflix. And now even with this Warner brothers news, I mean, all those movies that are coming out next year, uh, weren't planned. Like those filmmakers thought they would be theatrical movies and now they are streaming movies, uh, even though they're day and date, but I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's interesting. And we're about to talk about it and I'm excited. So this is our, probably one of our longest, uh, reviews ever but um, but it's also just talking about david fincher's yeah. career and i think he's a filmmaker that will continue to have conversations about for for years to come and, and it's also just interesting again that you know he he takes a movie like this and strips away any of the romantic elements of making a movie that's you know considered in such high regard and says like oh it was basically a work for hire kind of thing and you know it was just making a movie like any other film and that's kind of what is fascinating about this but also fascinating about the industry is that you know we we, as as moviegoers kind of project certain things onto films and and kind of create a legend and mystery and a mystique behind it all and when you actually look at it from a business point of view there's not much there like it was okay this is a movie that they green litter commissioned and certain people had um you know authority at the time on it or as you mentioned like with orson wells with uh with you know final cut i mean he was trying to also make joseph conrad's heart of darkness at the time and that failed horribly so you know like that is that is worth talking about in general and i think fincher is a guy that like i hope you know he he took five years between panic room and zodiac and now six between gone girl and mank 
I hope that doesn't happen again because I would like to see, you know, him make a steady stream of films, you know, every two or three years. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I hope he uh, more often. Who the hell keeps calling me? Okay, we're going to end this show with this phone call I'm getting. One sec. Hello. Yep. Sounds sounds good, man. Okay, take care. See you soon. Bye. I don't know if I always get weed delivered while we're recording, but like it's always that. Dank um, mank? Yeah, I get some dank mank delivered. Um <laughs> God. Yeah. Uh he'll be here in 25 minutes, everyone. Anyways, uh 25, 2.5 for me, uh, for Mank, a four out of five from Eric. Thank you all for listening. Um, if you love this. Uh, you'll like our other long podcast, which is called the Untitled Movie Podcast. 79th Draft should be available pretty much as you're listening to this or very soon after, where Eric and I uh, kind of you know, talk about that you know, HBO Max, Warner Brothers news, and, uh, and much, much more. Uh, so go check that out. Also, Untitled Movie Conversations is back. Would love for you guys to check that out as well. Our two newest interviews with Joey Magidson and uh, Nick Scarpino are up on that channel right now. Both fantastic conversations. And uh, we'll be uh, actually with Nick. We even talked about the state of the industry and kind of with Joey as well with the state of Oscar season with this year and stuff like that. Uh, but specifically with Nick, we brought up a lot of this state of the, you know, what, what are cinemas now? So, um, really interesting conversation there. So go check that out. Um, I forget what else I was going to plug. Oh, thank you for everyone who's listened this year. This show specifically untitled movie reviews, uh, killed it. I mean, at least on Spotify, those are the only like year end stats we have right now, but, um, just not to toot our own horns. It's mostly just to thank everyone. If you've made it 51 minutes into a mank review, we really, really appreciate We've it been going for 51 um, minutes. We sure have man. Yeah. So it hasn't felt like that. Cause it's always fun. No. So like it's, um, so we really, really do appreciate it. 51 minutes. We were in 50 countries on the show this year, uh, whether they listen for a second or, you know, listen to everything. I don't, that's, that's an insane stat to me. So, uh, we just really do appreciate it. So thank you all for making it this far into the show and supporting us and everything like that. So just wanted to say thanks. Um, as always, my name is Matt Rohrbeck. You can find more of my work around the internet, but mostly at untitledmoviepodcast.com. And you can follow me on all of those social medias at dank mank. And no, it's at Matt Rohrbeck. And I'm Eric Merkin. You can find more of my reviews at rogerstv.com slash cinemascene and on the social medias at EM6211. Until next time. Dank mank. Stank. <laughs> 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 <laughs>